Good morning, afternoon, or evening. We are back, Bostopian News, with Evan George to do your general election recap. And the headline for many is progressives win over moderates, or Michelle Wu wins the night. But for me, it is nothing has changed, nothing could have changed, and nothing will change. And if you think that comes from any disappointment or frustration that I am feeling, it absolutely does not. Everyone who won, speaking for Boston, was very easily predicted to win, to such a point that I think I came within one percentage point of guessing the outcome in the District 3 election. This is very much on rails, and one of my favorite expressions is the people who vote are the people who always vote. And that, again, did not really change. And I think the best way to communicate or articulate what I mean by the comment of nothing could have changed is even if every single contested election, I'm not going to count District 7 with Althea Garrison in what they say will be their final run, but who knows, she might just have one more in her. But in every other contested election, both at the at-large and at the district level. If you switch to one, and we're going to keep John Fitzgerald where he was, but in all the other ones, you switch who won, it would not have made a single difference on the Boston City Council. And what I mean by that is there was no scenario where the conservatives, if they were to have won Bridget over Henry, if they were to have won in... District 6 and in District 5 and in District 8 would be able to form a coalition that would have been able to override a Michelle Wu veto. So even in the scenario where the conservatives were able to operate as a block, which they are very successful in doing, and they have who is their new head being Erin Murphy. She is now the leader of the conservative movement in Boston politics for the time being. And we'll do the breakdown of all the numbers, so on and so forth. But there was no scenario where the Boston City Council would have been able to use any legislative maneuvering to pull policies and, most importantly, the budget to the right. It could not have mathematically happened. And so we are still, just like we were in last term, in a Michelle Wu-controlled Boston government because Boston is a strong mayoral system. The illusion of that ballot initiative to give more control to the Boston City Council over the budget has been a complete joke and a failure and was mostly undermined by Michelle Wu herself in terms of how she had our legal department interpret that ballot initiative and their powers, both the previous budget and the most recent one. And ultimately, all that really changed is that Michelle Wu has even more control on the thermostat we'll call it, of what temperature is she getting from that Boston City Council? How hot is that going to be for her? And she now just has a firmer grasp on it and can really set that dial wherever she wants. But again, she already had both the ability to do that, to influence the voting direction. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little because of the political illiteracy of our media there really was no large messaging or understanding of the dynamics within the Boston City Council as it relates to the mayor. 
So in terms of what heat she was getting, it was more annoyance. And so that annoyance for her is now gone. But again, materially speaking, nothing could have changed in this dynamic. And as we saw from voter participation, nothing will change because the same people who vote are the same people who always vote. And so with that quick little rant at the beginning, let's now look at what happened and see if we can gain any insight whatsoever. And first, just to talk about voter participation, I believe for our prelim, we got just over 11%, which means just under 90% of voters either made the conscious or subconscious choice not even to participate. And in this general election, the last official numbers we have were from 6 p.m., and this is from the Boston Election Department, where 15.47 voters cast a ballot. Now, there was still another two hours to go, but even if somehow that skyrocketed, I don't think we hit 20%, which means that for people trying to gleam, you know, what are we getting from the voters? What we are getting from the voters is that four out of every five either don't care, don't think it'll make much of a difference, and are not participating in the political aspects of democracy. Because as we know, there are many other forms of democracy, such as economic democracy, but that is not a term that we allow in this country and has most certainly been beaten out of any vernacular. But four out of five voters deciding not even to show up. And again, that could have been a conscious choice, or it could have been, I am too busy. I work too many jobs. I don't have childcare. And this is not worth me prioritizing. And for the people who it is worth prioritizing, they will overwhelmingly be people who benefit from the current system, which is why they are participating in it. Or maybe they are like you and they are like me in that they get some level of entertainment value out of it. But for the vast majority, and I think once we get the final numbers, I'm comfortable saying over 80% simply do not vote and do not participate. So now of that 20% or sub 20% that did, how did they vote and who did they vote for? Now, looking at the unofficial results, because these will all be unofficial, but there was nothing close enough that we even need to really wait. Lucy Lujan tops the ticket 20.31%, which was, again, very expected. Julia Mejia, I believe, came within, you know, a tenth of a percentage point of topping the ticket last cycle over Michael Flaherty with all of the positive press that Rootsy has gotten, her ability to work with conservatives on the redistricting, but then also work with the more left candidates, then she was able to stitch together a larger coalition. Now, she just eked out, maybe not just, but still, pretty close, Erin Murphy getting the number two spot at 19.81%. So it was just half of a percentage point difference between them. And with Michael Flaherty gone, and there being very, very few viable conservative candidates for the at-large, Aaron Murphy, of course, absorbs all of the really white votes in Boston and throughout Boston, all of the conservative votes throughout Boston, all of the, and I don't know the best way to phrase it, because feminist most certainly isn't, but all the people who want to see more women in representation, she absorbs. And so... She has an incredibly wide coalition. Again, Michael Flaherty is gone. Frank Baker is gone. She is now the leader of the conservative movement, even though Ed Flynn has seniority 
in terms of his time on a council. He is a district level counselor and somebody who is the definition of apolitical. Just really gets out of bed, has his father's last name, and that's good enough for him. Aaron Murphy definitely has a vision and a political ideology. Will it always be coherent? No. But she very clearly has strong views where it comes to what we should be doing with marginalized populations and the role of the police in keeping the us away from the them. Now, in third place, we have Julia Mejia, 18.10%. So a little under a 2% difference from Julia and Erin, a little more than a 2% difference between Julia and Rootsy. And if there's really any hope for this council, it is going to now come from Julia. Yes, I was disappointed with her present vote, and I think a major source of that disappointment for that present vote on the housing sweep of Mass and Cass was how desperately, desperately we need her to now be the anchor of a left political movement in Boston. Because the loss of Kendra really can't be overstated in terms of Kendra's ability to lead that coalition, and most importantly, whip votes. The only reason that we saw any sort of larger vetoes over the mayor's budget or any sort of left attempts at influencing was primarily because of Kendra's ability, both because of her experience of an organizer to do outside strategy and just her intellect and her charm to be able on an inside strategy to get the other, what are sometimes referred to as progressive candidates, maybe I'll go on a tangent about that in a moment too, to get them to vote in line. With Kendra's absence, there is now no one to do that. And the more liberal to progressive candidates are even more just going to be, even to put it kindly, as chickens with their heads cut off, but more in reality, just going to do whatever will individually benefit their political ambition. Where Kendra was very few times, but still was able to beat that out of them to get them to vote in line. And now that is really what we need Julia to be able to do. And I really, really hope she takes on that responsibility. Again, I think Rootsy, and many people have said this, I said it the moment she started working with the conservatives for redistricting, is that she's probably doing this because she wants to be the council president. And this is going to be really her little cookie for helping to re-solidify and even try to make gains for the white conservative voting blocks within Boston. Her, her little treat will be get to have city council president. I know it comes with a pay increase as well. So I hope that's going to be worth it. And, you know, maybe a little bit of hope in her as well. She was great on the brick. I think we're going to, especially as the police union contract comes up, and we'll talk about that too, we're going to need her to be willing to be bold, to be confident, and to push back against what we are going to see is a rising tide of conservatism in the city of Boston. So I really hope she finds her voice, and I really hope Julia is able to be the new anchor in the left coalition politically here in Boston. And now finally, that fourth and final slot was not as close as I thought it was going to be, but Henry Santana with 15.53% to Bridget Nee Walsh's 12.18%. So about a 3.3% difference 
between Bridget and Henry, and then about a 2.5% difference between Henry and the Tier 1 candidates, which means that Henry is closer to being a Tier 1 candidate than he was to being a Tier 2 candidate. And really, I think this comes from Bridget's inability to form a larger coalition, despite the white conservative areas of Southie, East Dorchester, Charlestown, West Roxbury. Again, we don't have those official numbers, but her inability to do that, simply people just couldn't probably differentiate between her and, and Catherine. It was just like kind of like another nameless, seemingly white woman on it, and if you're not really messaging and you're not really putting in the time in the other communities and all you're trying to do is run up the score in the same old place, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it. And Henry was. And really, out of all of the now Michelle Wu-backed candidates, which I think comprises like 25% of the council, Henry is the one I have the most faith in, though obviously has some hesitance and that's mostly just an unknown. And if Henry is able to chart his own course and fight for things that he believes in, Again, this is predicated on his beliefs <laughs> translate to what actually benefit the people of Boston, not just what he thinks or maybe heard at a uh, fancy private high school benefit people. And will he be willing to have conflict with his relationship with Michelle Wu, which I know can be uncomfortable, but you're now an at-large city councilor. Like, you have power. You can be your own person. You can have disagreements and then smooth things out later. That's what all these politicians, the ones that last, are able to do. You have to constantly form and reform different coalitions. Now, for Bridget, will this be the last we see from her? Maybe. I mean, you know, running twice, basically four years of your life, losing both times, that has an emotional toll to it. But I, again, and we'll quickly go through the numbers for the other three. This was the weakest field for at-large. And I can't imagine there will ever be a softer opportunity for someone to get on. And so finally, those tier three candidates now, we have a massive drop. And the next up is Sean Nelson with 4.77%, which means we have the biggest drop between the tier ones and the tier twos to the tier threes at about, call it 7.4%. And all the other tier three candidates are all so close within striking distance of each other. I mean, Clifton with 4.67%, so one-tenth of a percentage point separate Sean and Clifton. And then Catherine taking the last place spot, 3.88%, which is, we'll call it about an eight-tenths drop, 0.8 drop. And between the three of them, Sean, Clifton, and Catherine, not, it was less than one percentage point between the three of those candidates. So all of those all got, again, very, very similar votes. Catherine has a little bit of a slight drop. There's Sean and Clifton both got over 10,000 votes, with Catherine getting 8,500. Now, do I think there's anything to politically gleam from it? That is when we really need to see the breakdown. Because what I am mostly curious about is how much of Catherine's votes, specifically Catherine, how much of her votes were predominantly from the North End, Southie, East Boston, Charlestown, West Roxbury. Because it is my guess that there will be slight upticks, but nothing politically relevant. Meaning, I don't think the voters knew anything about Sean Clifton or Catherine. I said it when I did my podcast that I, and I have a very small uh, following compared to the Globe and the Herald, that I was probably the largest outlet 
in Boston media to actually seriously talk about them. And so I think the votes they got, you could almost say random or like, you know, like maybe someone saw a quick sentence in the paper about them, but like nothing that much. Maybe some people thought it was funny. Maybe some people gave like sympathy votes, but we won't know. But if what it looks like is if, you know, and now I'll throw Sean in this as well. If Catherine and Sean, if 90% of their votes are all from the white areas, then we can see, ooh, like there is a politically aware coalition that is willing to go this extreme to the right. But if it's more spread out, you know, nothing that politically significant, then yeah, these are just all random and political incoherence that we see in voters all the time. So I am looking forward to seeing that. But all right, now that our at-larges are done, District 1, of course, uncontested. GG dominates the write-ins. Though I do like that 262 people decided to write in a different candidate um, rather than either leave it blank or select something else. And I think out of all of the candidates this past cycle, I have been the hardest on Gigi, and I think the primary reason for that is that special election between her and Tanya, their policies were so, so identical and overlapping, and I only ended up siding with Tanya because of organizers in East Boston basically saying, Tanya will be her own person, and we have really... Serious concerns that Gigi will ultimately just do what Lydia and Michelle tell her to do. And again, you be a little bit similar to Henry. I wanted Gigi to be able to kind of, you know, stand on her own, be willing to jeopardize temporarily those relationships. And she did do so successfully for that first uh, budget battle where, you know, it was communicated to me at the time that Gigi really, the quote was, stuck her neck out. And, you know, once ultimately that failed in that endeavor, I think because at then Kenzie Bach was the one that switched over and joined the conservatives to not override Michelle Wu's veto. I don't know what backlash she got from that, but it was enough that we never really saw that sort of political courage again. And so do I think it's hopeless? No. But as you know, the wind shifts, and I think another great way of understanding politics is that they are weather vanes and they kind of just go with the direction that's in some ways almost what you need to do to stay in office. But maybe she'll become her own person or, you know, it's always possible. You know, mask off. A lot of her policies could have just, you know, been a little BS and this is what she always believed. And that is always something that I revert back to and saying, I can't tell you what's in these people's heads. I can just look at how they vote and then judge from there. But all right, District 2, we have Ed Flynn. Only 169 write-ins against him. So he's not going anywhere. I think he's a top contender to run against Michelle Wu. I'm sure people are having those conversations with him. Will he? Eh, I don't know. And now over to District 3, my district. And while I didn't make any predictions in my last episode just because of how closely I was tied to this campaign, to Joel as a person... This was by far the easiest to call in terms of how this was going to go. With John Fitzgerald coming in at 58.24% to Joel Richards, 41.41%. So a little under a 17% difference between them. And I think 
when I analyzed the prelims, I gave the number, I think, 42 or 43. So this was, again, easy to predict, especially once the redistricting map got thrown out. And the two things that I want you to always remember about why that got thrown out, which would have taken the conservative white powerhouse of Adams Village and really just swung it over to District 4, which I am looking forward to looking at the data to see what would have happened, but most certainly would have made this an infinitely closer race. I think it could have came just down to like a coin flip if that change went through. And the reason it didn't go through, and again, this is what I want people's takeaways to always be, is one, a judge from West Roxbury made the decision, and two, Michelle Wu's administration decided not to put up a fight for it. Was it deliberate sabotage? I think so. But whatever the reason, the political calculation was made to not put up a fight in defense of the map that passed. That is what I want you to remember about the redistricting map that was thrown out. And once that happened, and the map more or less looked the same as it did before, though we did have a United Fields corner, Joel was not going to be able to overcome two massive advantages that John had. One, just like Ed Flynn, he has a famous last name, and people really liked his dad, Kevin. I cannot tell you how many times on the doors I would speak to people with John Fitzgerald signs out on their lawn, who absolutely loved Joel, who loved the policies we were talking about, but ultimately said, I can't vote for Joel because I'm really good friends with Kevin, because I loved his father. Over and over and over, that is what we heard. And when I talk about, you know, the three ways you can get elected, one of them is to just come from a very large family, but most importantly, one that has a political dynasty, one that has a political connection. His dad was a state rep for 25 years or something. That name recognition, that building ties to all of the families in that district, in that area, the networks, the Rolodexes, the IOUs, all that piles up and gets passed on to the kids. Same with Dan Hunt. And so with that advantage alone, Joel would not have been able to overcome it. But second, the money. At one point, John Fitzgerald had more cash on hand than Bridget and Henry, two at-large city councilors combined. I don't know if John set records. I kind of doubt it, but I wouldn't be surprised. And so when you have a massive, massive fundraising disadvantage and come from a famous last name because people liked your daddy and having a political powerhouse of, I think, Florian Hall had the largest voting participation in the city, just would not be able to overcome that. And what do I think John will be like as a city councilor? He won't be as legislatively experienced as Frank was, who could sometimes do little parliamentary procedures to throw wrenches and things. I don't think he'll be as openly hostile. It won't be as fun, I can tell you that. But he's still just going to vote exactly how Frank voted. He still was on that Save the City pack that they quickly had to hide because it got a little too clanny for people. So we'll just see that identical vote that we've been seeing for years and years and years in this district. Though he might be even friendlier to the BPDA than Baker was because, I mean, John literally worked there for a while, so he'll be a little bit more openly hostile 
to the idea of abolishing it. But besides that, that's it. Now we head to District 4, the last uncontested election, Brian Worrell, with only 119 write-ins against him. Brian has been probably the biggest surprise in a good way in the council. I mean, he got the endorsement of the police unions when he first ran, so rightfully, a lot of us were very skeptical. But I almost kind of have to give props to Kendra, because I think Kendra was very instrumental in kind of getting Brian to vote the right way. And with her voice being gone, you know, we saw him also during redistricting getting really pissed that he was the one who was asked to sacrifice very, very little, but being asked to sacrifice to absorb those large white conservative areas would not have been enough to jeopardize the seat at all. But still, he was the one who was being asked to. He was pulled kicking and screaming to do it and then kind of joined Rootsy, joined the other white conservatives in taking revenge against Ricardo and Kendra and Tanya when they tried to clip and did successfully in some areas their precincts, really just to water down those districts as political revenge, I think, in his case, but for those white conservatives as part of a deliberate strategy to weaken black and browns, communities of color's political power. So I, I really hope Julia, because I, I don't think Brian Worrell has a political ideology. I think he has even less than Ed Flynn does. And I just really hope Julia is able to put her arm around him and hopefully continue him taking more good votes than bad. And now we have what was, in my mind, the closest that we were going to see in terms of the election of what could have happened one way or another. And that is, of course, District 5 with Enrique Pepin coming in at 52.75% to Jose Ruiz's 46.84%. So a six percentage point differential between them. And now is a good time to probably mention that for the Boston Patrolman Association, Police Patrolman Association, the police union, their slate of endorsed candidates did worse than the Boston DSA voting guide. <laughs> so points to us in terms of getting in people. But Jose was the one that they really wanted because he was a former cop. And Enrique, maybe more than anyone else, got his seat because of Michelle Wu. Again, Kent comes from the same political tree in terms of his career, but also with Michelle Wu kind of like, you know, really putting down her flag behind him in the prelim against Ricardo. And I am still very surprised Ricardo did not make it out of that prelim. You know, as I've talked about before, if you look at the special election for the Suffolk DA race, he did well enough in the areas that was his district. And that was at the peak of his political controversies. And so I was surprised he got knocked out, but I think just enough people were just fed up with the Arroyos. There were enough other candidates to kind of vote for. And Enrique really kind of positioned himself as, I am going to continue these policies, but without the baggage. So that combined with Michelle Wu, I'm sure just handing him a Rolodex of donors, that put him over the edge. And maybe just very briefly about endorsements. Very few people who vote are aware of who endorsed who. That is not the real value of an endorsement. The real value is, one, what those endorsements signal to the media in terms of who they should be supporting, in terms of now giving more positive press towards, and two, donor networks, donor Rolodexes, institutional memory of who are the people in these communities that other voters might listen to when they 
bump into them at the coffee shop or at the bar or at the store. And the hardest thing for political newcomers is kind of building that donor network. There are some you know, easy things like copy paste that a lot of campaigns do. But if you have someone like Michelle Wu and her staff members who can kind of just sit down with you for a few hours and say, here are all the people, like, here's your list, drop Michelle's name, Michelle's going to make some key calls to some big people too, just to make sure that they support you. You know, that was enough. And in all of the headlines today, and I think I made this comment yesterday that we were going to constantly see this phrase is like progressives win, you know, to the extent that Enrique is a progressive, and I've talked about that term ad nauseum, it is politically meaningless. You know, I sometimes refer to it as a progressive is simply a Democrat that you like. Uh, you could also say a progressive is someone who sometimes votes for liberal policies, but I'm sorry, that's also true for conservative candidates. We saw plenty of conservative councilors in the Boston City Council every now and then vote for something that could be viewed as a liberal policy, whether that was you know, the bus, the free bus services during COVID, whether that's the renaming of Faneuil Hall. You'll still have conservatives sometimes vote for those issues. And just like how we'll sometimes have progressives sometimes vote for issues like that. And in other times, they'll form coalitions with the conservatives where it comes to issues around the police and security and prisons and housing suites and subjugating poor and marginalized communities. And then when we're just trying to figure out, well, how does Enrique view himself on his campaign page? He never mentions the term progressive once. And I am very confident, though, I, I'm not going to put in the effort to find the audio. I believe in a forum he referred to himself as a moderate or having moderate views. And really the only time I see him champion his progressiveness is on the questionnaire for progressive Massachusetts, where, you know, in under additional comments, he writes, change can and will happen when you have a progressive champion who will not only advocate for the policies that will lead to change, but also someone who is ready to put their boots on the ground and work with the very people that need the help. I'm ready and committed to be that champion. So that's really the only time we see him take like a strong stance on is he a progressive? But other than that, we just see it in the media nonstop. Um, you know, taking the headlines from Battenfeld, <laughs> Boston Herald, Michelle Wu wins clean liberal sweep in low turnout Boston election. Just the first sentence is funny. It wasn't a referendum on Mayor Michelle Wu, but Boston City Council election showed how tough it would be to knock off Wu in a low turnout race dominated by activists and liberals. And maybe just to, as a final point to drive home, just how politically meaningless this term is. And I really wish the media stopped using it. <laughs> um, and sorry, uh, well, before I do that, another Boston Herald article, Pepin, Weber, Santana, Durkin declare victory for Boston City Council in progressive sweep for Mayor Wu. And there are plenty of Boston Globe articles, which also, again, frame this all around progressives. At the federal level, where you actually have like an official progressive caucus, if you want to be a member of that caucus, all you need to do, at least the the due was, I think, $4,000. And this was, I think, in 2020. So if you just paid $4,000, you could just say you are a member of the Progressive Caucus, and now you can vote however you want. And here in Boston and in Massachusetts, you can do that without even having to pay dues. You can just use the term progressive to describe yourself whenever you feel like it. And the media out of, and this is what I mean by like political literacy, will just say, okay, well, this person says they are. So, all right, we're not going to look at their votes to actually kind of determine where are you in 
a conservative, moderate, liberal, progressive, socialist lens. It's just simply, you tell us what you are and we'll go with it. But also, they really, by they, I'm talking about the media, just use the national framing of our political discourse and then try to imprint it here. Because everyone really just looks at who has the office of the presidency, which one of the two parties is in power in Congress, and all of the framing is around those issues and those terms. So when they use terms like progressive, they're looking at it at that national level. Yes, again, the caucus is the joke, but in their minds, you know, they think the squad, they can kind of visualize what a left member of a national political body for our U.S. government looks like. But then when they try to imprint it here, it really doesn't make sense. And that's why the only terminology they use is progressives versus moderate, which there was nothing moderate about Aaron Murphy and Ed Flynn and Frank Baker and Michael Flaherty. And I am applying that to their votes, which is very easy to see. But there is just this illiteracy within our news media and their political coverage that they're just going to use the terms that they learned about when they were an undergrad or use the terms that they see in national stories and not actually work through and try to fit, well, how does this work within the framework of Boston politics? But, you know, so long, Ricardo. (laughs) We'll see what Enrique does. And now over to District 6. This was more of a blowout than I was predicting, but definitely, again, a very easy call with Benjamin Weber taking 60.70% to William King's 38.74%, which really what I take away from just looking at those voting margins, you know, a 22% difference is just how good of a job Joel Richards did in his campaign for how lopsided that was, that he had a smaller margin between him than Ben and William. Anyway, what will we see from Ben Weber? He'll basically just be Matt O'Malley. He'll occasionally take some good votes. He'll occasionally work within the larger left political coalition of the Boston City Council. But ultimately, where it comes time for the budget, where it comes time about the police and prisons and security and the brick, he is going to just do whatever Michelle Wu tells him to do. And maybe have the impulses to have done that anyway, so he won't even need the direction. I'm looking forward to seeing just how much support he got in West Roxbury. Because clearly, he definitely had to have gotten a good amount of support. But I have to imagine that that voting breakdown will look very similar to what we saw in Kendra's race. Where the further east you are, the more left you are. And that shade slowly shifts and shifts. And then if you were on... You know, the westernmost edge of West Roxbury, you are the most conservative. And I think, or I can almost tell you, I bet you Ben and William had that same breakdown. Why was King less successful? A lot of people would just talk about how absolutely unimpressive he is as a candidate and somebody that no one really took seriously as somebody who could do this job. Now we have over to District 7, another, not at all surprising, Tanya Fernandez-Anderson with 70.36% to perennial Althea Garrison at 28.45%. So 42% differential. Althea, I think you still got one more go at it in you. But you also have bad politics. So besides the joking of it, I never want to see you back in office. Anyway, similar to Julia, similar to Julia, 
we really, really need to see a strong Tanya Fernandez Anderson for this city to have any hope of communicating anything close to a left direction. Now, Tanya has had some amazing votes, almost a little bit like Gigi. I think I have been harder on Tanya than what is deserved, though, I mean, Gigi absolutely deserves it from her votes. And I think maybe the reason that I've just been a little bit more outspoken against Tanya, which is very rare when I do it, but still enough that I'm happy to comment about it. It is because of how much I see potential and how much I really wish she had a more coherent political ideology to channel that intellect and that passion. And so, you know, when like the issue around should we have affordable housing and, you know, her coming out saying, I want to have no more affordable housing in my area. And I, you know, I think she was what she was trying to get at was why are we only building affordable units in our black and brown communities and allowing the white communities to simply not do it and put, you know, those people over there where they belong, which is, again, is a very accurate and correct critique. But the way of doing that is not to stigmatize and try to get rid of affordable housing in your area. And I think if, you know, Tanya and Julia as a nice one-two punch, maybe even Rootsy, let's just have a little bit of hope every now and then, can kind of form this, this wing, this block, especially, and this is going to be the big fight, is the police union contract. Because as I already mentioned in the beginning, there was no mathematical possibility of that police union contract being thrown out for being too soft or too lefty or too defundy, whatever the framing, the herald and the conservative candidates were going to use. There was never mathematically going to be the chance that the conservatives could reject it because it wasn't friendly enough to the police. But also, and this is fear going to be the big political miscalculation of Michelle Wu, is that the police are not going to accept anything but a 100% in their favor contract. Better and more than any other union, they do not cede ground willingly ever. And the smallest, slightest, little itty-bitty reform that could possibly even be spun as having some accountability over the police will be watered down to such an extent and will come at such a heavy material cost that it'll be insignificant and benefit the police anyway. And if we are going to try to push against it, again, we don't have the votes, and Michelle Wu is going to be able to have her fingers on that dial, be able to ring up Gigi whenever she wants, Ben whenever she wants, Enrique whenever she wants, Henry whenever she wants, and put enough pressure on them that there is no way a left coalition is going to really be able to do anything about that contract, and she'll be able to quiet the noise against it. That is really what I fear. That I That is, to the extent that Michelle Wu won, it is her ability to shape not just what that police contract was going to be, but the narrative around it. And we really need Tanya in that moment. When that police union contract comes, we really need Tanya to be the voice. And it needs to be strong enough that it just, it hits Rootsy, it hits Brian, and maybe God willing, Enrique and Henry and even let's just keep the positive eyes going. That voice is enough to carry Liz and Gigi. That would be a shocker. I'll send them a fruit basket if it does. 
But if we have any hope, it's, it's going to come. We're going to need Tanya. We're going to need Tanya. We're going to need Julia. And all right, slowly coming to an end. District 8, Sharon Durkin, 70.70% to Montez Haywards, 28.63%. So another 42% difference, an even larger margin, I believe, than the special election. Yes, it was. I believe the special election was a 41% difference. Now we're up to a 42%. And out of, yeah, all of the new candidates, which I'm going to throw Sharon in this new class. I mean, she's only been on the council for a few months from a special election. Completely unimpressed by her. I think she's going to be the, at least so far, and please prove me wrong. Again, I've been hard on Sharon in her brief duration because her brief duration came from some big votes on the brick and Mass and Cass, where both her comments about him were so hilariously copy-pasted that I, I w- wouldn't be shocked if she was just read them off of a text that Michelle Wu told her to do. And of course, just the votes themselves being bad. So I'll learn more about her <laughs> and try to figure out, you know, does she have a political ideology besides somebody who has clearly wanted to run for office her entire life and now finally there? Just looking at her career history, that's very easy to tell. Very similar to Henry in that way, but I have obviously more faith in Henry. And finally, disappointingly, but not unsurprisingly, District 9, Liz Brearden with 65.95% to Jacob DeBlaycourt's 33.31%. So, you know, a two-to-one margin differential. And I feel like we've seen this time and time again in Alston Brighton. The, the renters are not coming out, folks. They're just not. They never will. I'm sorry. Uh, the amount of times, you know, we hear about how many renters there are in Austin Brighton, they don't vote. It doesn't matter. You know who votes? The same people who always vote. And Liz is able to dance around enough that all of the left groups throughout Greater Boston don't want to rock the boat, don't really want to put in the effort to challenge her. Again, she works within those coalitions enough. She answers their calls. She attends their parties and fundraisers and meetings. Every now and then she has some good votes. And so she's able to keep kind of the left at bay. And she just represents the districts where a lot of the people don't show up to vote. And, you know, with that, I don't really have too much else to add. Nothing changed. Nothing could have changed. Nothing will change. This is going to be probably a more boring city council than it was. It'll be less politically interesting. The media will get to basically just go back to ignoring it. So they might regret not having Kendra and Ricardo. I really can't remark enough about, you know, how many articles against those two and how many negative articles about the Boston City Council as a whole we saw. And then the moment the prelims ended, that just all got thrown away. I mean, because we still had the brick vote. We still had mass and cast. But you then never saw it about this dysfunction. I mean, you still have the same council is there. But all of that narrative was gone because all that meant to achieve is to create as much of a negative environment around Kendra and Ricardo so that the few voters that showed up simply just had the headache and said, I can't keep reading about how negative this is. I can't keep hearing this. It's bad. I'm being told every day it's bad. We just need somebody new in there. So they achieved their goal. We haven't heard a word since unless it's referencing the past one. Uh, The editorial of the... Globe will come out on like, this is a victory. You know, now we can work together to have the solutions we need, which for those people is just allowing developers to do whatever they want 
and to brutalize, terrorize, surveil, and harass the marginalized people who just won't get it and who are making Boston a worse city for us. And I think we all know who the us is that they are referring to in that in-group. And, you know, the big fight that we're going to look at, I've just talked about it, is that police union contract. That, you know, the future of the BPDA, those are, I think, really going to be the big two issues. We already did the rent control. We already did changes to the IDP policy. There's nothing really more about housing we're going to see in this term. We'll see what happens with the budget, but that's going to just be very disinteresting. It won't have any real strong political salience because the municipal elections are on the other years. We're not going to see a lot of people jumping in for the state house races because everyone runs unopposed. And so we won't really see that as any sort of a political leverage. So God, wouldn't that be nice? But don't worry, because I have plenty of exciting things. <laughs> and I am very much looking forward to now doing the little bios on all of our new counselors, learning more about them just as they begin their early terms, covering the city council a little bit more than I currently do in terms of actually watching and keeping up with all the minutiae and the hearings and things like that. And because, again, I think this will be a little bit of a lower temperature and less interesting, I have some other groups, we'll call it, that I am looking forward to exploring and explaining and doing deep dives into, as well as some, uh, some nice uh, history stuff that I have planned. But all that's for the future. For now, as always, if you'd like to support the show, best way of doing that is to share it around. I'm always bad with tweeting and promoting it, but if you wanted to share it in your own DMs, people you know, fantastic. The Patreon will officially launch when I am back from my trip to Ireland that I leave for tomorrow. So I will officially launch that in the next episode. It'll probably be its own special announcement just to explain it and ways that you can contribute that way. If you would like to still Venmo me, you can, but I'm going to kind of ask that people stop doing that once I officially launch the podcast because Bostopia News, ah, do you know what, I'll, I'm going to save it. I'll save a, a little teaser about uh, the, the current direction that um, my, my media has taken. But yes, you can Venmo me if you want, or just hold off for that nice big announcement. And I will be on vacation when I come back, I got to get my life in order. And so you can expect the next episode probably in about three weeks. That'd be my guess. Could be a little bit more because that, ne that next episode is going to be the big one. The Show Woo Recap Year 2. And so I hope you have a great next few weeks. I won't be doing this Boston Local News in 60 Seconds next week, but that'll definitely pick up sooner than the podcast will, so you can still get your little updates that way. And as always, take care and have a great rest of your day.